I thought, what shall I share this morning? And look, I've already spoken for and prayed for seven minutes, so now I'm really in trouble. So, uh, and, and the idea is to, uh, that we'll be singing uh, by the hour. But I really wanted to share with you um, and think about some thoughts, more as a devotional this morning as we gather together. And I wanted to think and talk to you about something that is so precious and something that I have indeed been, been lingering in and meditating on. And that is the beauty of the incarnation of Christ. And I don't know how you think about the incarnation, but the whole Christmas story is about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. And as he came into the world, and our our, our hymns are full of it, our carols declare it, we're playing carols now in our home, and it's, it's baby Jesus born, son of God, incarnation, all of these glorious theological terms which we should love and savor. And, and, and what C.S. Lewis called this, he called it the grand miracle. I love that. We are dealing with this Christmas what we declare is the grandest of all miracles. And I want to encourage your hearts. You may not be a believer, but I want to encourage all of your hearts and just declare that the Christmas time is about the grandest of miracles. So let's, let's pause a moment and, and read a few verses. In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledge to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Well, what a remarkable words those are. And when we think of that, he will be called the Son of God. This is called the Incarnation. See, it's the, the very moment, as it is described, that God came down to humanity. And, and although we say it, and we speak it with such ease, it is such a beautiful, complex, theological thought of, of God becoming down. Let me start off on our little journey into the incarnation. First of all, I want to remind you of the uniqueness of the incarnation. 
This is unique in the whole of history. It is unique in all that that we hear and read that God became man. Now let me just say this. People have, have, men have become gods in the ancient world, or allegedly, of course, they haven't. Alexander the Great, in the great uh, uh, time, a son of Philip of uh, Macedonia, he, um, he, he, he ruled the world by 33, and, and he conquered what, uh, what is now Turkey, all the way through to India. And of course, Alexander the Great was a man who was then declared divine and became a god. God, uh, sees Augustus, who brought the warring uh, fractions together in the Roman Empire, who, who solved years of civil war that was ripping the empire together, was declared a god. And he went from a mere man and senator to becoming this god figure. But this is completely different. The incarnation is about about God becoming man. And this is shocking. It is unique. It is incredible in all of our thinking and our world that God uh, became man. And often we struggle with this concept. It is unique and it is uniting. What does it unite? The very nature of what I've read and it describes it describes the uniting of God and man in human form. In fact, the phrase is used theologically, God-man. And, and it's this, this idea that now God, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, has come down to this earth and, and, and has united in humanity. God has joined humanity. God has joined this crazy, mad world in the Roman era where there were temples and ancient gods and worshipping Jupiter and Saturn and Venus and all of these, the great philosophers of Plato and Homer and so on, in the middle of all of this crazy world, the Messiah was born and the Messiah came and God himself came into humanity. You can can see it in the writing here in Luke. Because in one breath, they call him here in this text that Jesus is the son of Mary. Well, we all know that. But then in another part, as we read on, he's the son of the Most High God. Wow, he's gone from the son of Mary to the son of the Most High God. And then we read that he's the son of David and David's throne. And then we read that he's the son of God. And it literally states that, the son of God, and called the son of God. So he's the son of Mary, humanity, the son of David, humanity, divine, the son of the most high God. It's one of the most beautiful concepts and thoughts. It's, it's, it's the infinite becoming finite. Well, let's look at the infinite. Well, we're talking about God himself who has limitless power. God himself, who has limitless knowledge, limitless wisdom, limitless 
power down to the very subatomic level. God understands all of creation, all of the world. His spatial presence is everywhere. Indeed, we use words like omnipotent, omnipresent. Uh, we concepts of an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present God that is present all around us and holds the universe together. He is infinite in who God is. He is everlasting. He is glorious. He is magnificent. And suddenly the limitless power of God becomes finite. He enters into humanity. He enters into humanity. What does that mean? Well, it means that he now allows himself to operate within the boundaries of the human world. Limitless power now becoming in the boundaries, the rules, if you like, the restrictions of humanity. And there's a purpose between God becoming man. There's a purpose of why God would be born in the most um, outrageous manner in a stable. Most outrageous way of a woman, a young girl in, in, in a small peasant society. It is outrageous to the thoughts of Alexander the Great and the great Caesars that, that we should talk about a God coming to the filth of a small um, a place in the middle of a nowhere land and being born into this world because that is exactly what he did. He came into the boundaries and the limits of humanity. I came into the lines of that. I, I, at the moment, I'm learning things that are new because I've never really understood basketball. And, and, and I'm, I'm sat there at, 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 at my 14-year-old daughter's um, basketball games next to somebody that really knows about basketball. I won't mention his name in case Brett Logie is here. Um, but, but as he started, to, I, I said, I really have very little idea about what's going on about the, uh, apart from getting the ball into the um, hoop. And... Um, and so I, uh, basket, I know. Um, and he started explaining it. Well, half an hour later, I knew, I didn't know there were these rules, that rules, that if you're, if you're rude to the ref, it does this, and these, how many fouls, and this foul, and this zone is here, and these lines, and if you score from here, you get three points. Whoa! I thought, wow, I just wish I could take him to a cricket game. And... <laughs> And, and yet God, limitless power, came into the limits of the rules, if you like, and the mess and the, and the, and the complexity of creation and humanity and was limited at that moment. So how can we really understand what God did? Well, I think it's lovely to look at Philippians 5. So Philippians 2 and verse 5. Because Paul uses poetry now. And as he starts to use poetry, he starts to explain this. He says, 
in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now take a moment and look at verse 6. In the NIV version, it says, Who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. In verse 6 it says, being the very nature. In fact, in the English Standard Version, it uses the phrase, being the very form. Which is actually a very, a very powerful way of thinking about it. Because it, it says that, that Jesus, who being the very form of God... So right here, Paul declares that God became man being the very form. Now when we think about form, or in, in our thinking in the Greek and, and English, we think of form being very simply the way something looks. That you see something and you think the form is the outward appearance of the nature of the way that something looks. This does not mean this here. It means in, 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 in Plato's Greek, a form meant, it meant the very inner substance. In fact, Plato's forms are, are, are quite well known because it talks about his, his truth, uh, the form and, and kindness and goodness, Plato's form of, of who we are inside. And Paul uses the same Greek to say that he may look like a man. He may look and have an appearance like a man, but his form, his nature, what is inside of this Jesus is utterly and completely divine. It is God himself in the form of man. It is God who is present. It is God who is there. But this is interesting because now we have a a description that within Jesus is the very divine. But then he says that, that, that he took up the taking the very nature of a servant. And again, we have that very nature, uh, the very form of a servant. So here is fully God, living and dwelling within Christ. But we see that he's taken up the form of a servant as well. So his form is of God within him. And now he is the form of a servant. In other words, that when you look at Jesus... He is that uttermost servant. He is that uttermost obedient service. In fact, the word slave can be used here as well. That Jesus was was completely a servant, completely a slave, completely given over to obedience and obedience in every way. And as he was given over to obedience... Even obedience right to the cross. 
Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that when we look at Jesus, we see the very divine. But when we look at Jesus, he is not fake. He's not faking being a servant. Everything within who Jesus was in his inner form was to serve the will of God. Within who he is in the way that he was was to be a slave to God's will. Everything that he was willing to do, he was willing to do it in obedience, even obedience all the way to the cross. You see... Nothing is equal to God except God. And yet, here we read that Jesus and equality and God are used in the same sentence. In other words, God became man, and as he became man... He was willing to live amongst us. He took on the very nature of a devoted, obedient servant, even service unto the cross, and he is still God. See, it's this whole thing that is described in John chapter 1 and verse 1. He was with God, and he is God. He was God before the beginning, and he is God. And so it uses this phrase. It says that, that, that he did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, and by taking the very nature of a servant, the image of a baby lying in a manger is God becoming, as it were, nothing. The image of, of Jesus not grasping, not clutching at the privileges and the benefits and the power of his Godhead, he surrendered those area and came down amongst us in humanity. Okay, so there is the theology of the Incarnation. It is a wonder. It is, Paul uses a poetry, a hymn to try and describe it. What does it mean for you and I this morning then? Say, what does this mean, Phil? You've explained something, but what does it mean to me? Now, three things. The incarnation of Christ means this. And in verse 5, we capture number one point. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Well, the same mindset of Christ in the incarnation was that he would become a servant, that he would become utterly obedient. And even though it hurt, he would serve the Father all the way to the cross. So I don't want to be a fake Christian. I don't want to look the part because Christ was not a fake God. He was man becoming God. Christ was not a fake servant. He wasn't acting in a role when he became a servant. His inner form was that truly of a, 
of of a servant. So when I look at the same mind of Christ, I don't want fake Christianity. I want to live my life as a servant of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't want to look like a Christian. I want to know that deep within my form, in my nature of who I am, the most important thing in my mind is to be obedient to Christ and to be a servant of the living God, even unto difficult times. This is what the incarnation teaches all of us. That he lived this way and we can become obedient servants. Number two, the incarnation teaches us that we have a God who truly identifies with our joys and our pains of life. Why? Because God has become human and dwelt amongst us. When you grieve, he grieves with you. When you laugh, he laughs with you. When you enjoy friendship, you enjoy the presence of God because God himself has enjoyed friends and relationships. When you take a long walk, God understands that because God has walked the very feet of humanity. When you weep at a graveside and see the empty tomb, he too has weeped at the graveside. When friends have abandoned you and people are not speaking to you, he too has been abandoned and has not been spoken to. When you feel afflicted and are travelling through the most painful of times, my friends, even unto the cross, and we walk the way of suffering and pain at times in our lives, you have an incarnated saviour who came into this world and walked amongst men. So in your darkest hour and your most blessed hour of life, when you face the last moments of life or you hold a newborn baby in your arms, God the Father knows what you go through. The incarnation tells us that. And thirdly, the incarnation teaches us and shows us an example. You see, Jesus was the very image of God stamped on humanity. The very image of God. And so when you look at a way we should live our lives in a devotion to God, God has showed us how to live our lives towards him as we read the life of Jesus. And Jesus' example shows us the way that we should live. He gives us the example because when I look at the eyes of Jesus and I look at the story of Christ and I gaze into Christ's life, I I see 
and now understand the divine nature of the loving God who cares for humanity and his brokenness and is willing to connect with me. I can only understand the infinite nature of a God by looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ. God's loving nature is expressed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ being born to this world and living amongst men. I now can understand God far clearer because I can see Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus, you understand God more. This is no Alexander the Great. This is, this is God giving up privileges, God giving up benefits, prerogatives, to come and live amongst men in such a close relationship that we now we call them father and son. It's such a close proximity, that loving relationship that is expressed towards humanity. So can I encourage you to meditate this Christmas on the Incarnation. And this should draw our hearts to love God more. Can I be challenged that my mind would be the same that of Christ? That I will be utterly a servant of all? That I will be obedient to his voice always, even when it hurts to the cross? Can I be reminded that, that everything I walk through in my life, Christ identifies with me because he's walked the path of humanity. And can I look at Jesus' incarnation as an example of the kind of life I should live and the kind of person I should be? I think if we approach Christmas this way, boy we might find a deeper love and a deeper worship and a deeper closeness for him in our lives. Let's pause and pray. As we pause, maybe you've come with a lot of pain and I want to tell you a loving God identified with you completely. So talk to him. Talk to him. Father, I pray that as we move forward, we read those words in Philippians, Lord that my mind should be the same as what I've just described in Christ, in the incarnation. Forgive me when I become so self-consumed that I forget that I'm a servant of the living God. That when I become so opinionated (laughs) that I'm a servant of the living God. Forgive me when I'm not obedient in my heart and attitude. Thank you that when I walk 
what feels like carrying my cross and you call me to pick up my cross. I pray that I will be obedient carrying my cross in my life. I will pick up my cross and I will follow Christ. Help me, Lord, this Christmas to look at the example and the life of Jesus, his devotion to the Father, that I may mirror that devotion to my Heavenly Father in all that I do, Lord Jesus, I ask. And in the final moments of our service, come close to us and bring the miracle, the grand miracle, alive once again in our hearts of the great incarnation of God becoming man and dwelling amongst us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's stand together.